What I'm gonna be sharing with you today is a sermon I've titled, Your Life, A Living Sacrifice. Now, our principal scripture that I'm gonna be working around is found in Romans 12, verse one. I'll give you a moment to get there that we can read it together. It is a fascinating scripture, and it speaks of our lives being a living sacrifice. And that's a profound picture, because if we think of sacrifices in the Old Testament, we think of something that is started, burns, and is completed. But this scripture in Romans 12 refers to us as a living sacrifice, which is something that is never expired. It never burns out, it's never meant to. And that is a description of our life before the Lord. How do we live our lives? Every single person's life has a, f- a flavor and a fragrance. And what is the flavor and the fragrance of our lives? Because it's been continuously lifted. Is it something that glorifies God? Or is it more for ourselves and God is just an addition to our life? Let's read the scripture together. I will be reading the amplified version, but please follow. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, dedicating all of yourselves, set apart as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God, which is your rational, logical, intelligent act of worship. The New King James Version says, which is your reasonable service. Doesn't that strike a chord? It's a reasonable service to live for God because of the price he paid to gain you into his family and into his kingdom. And the first point, well, before I go on, Jesus even affirms this, where he says in Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so there is a place within us to acknowledge that the most important part of our life belongs to God, and that we are to seek his kingdom first as a living sacrifice. Now point number one is agree with the Lord. Agree with the Lord. You see, the Lord has got a perspective of your life. He's given you gifts, he's given you talents. And there is at times a temptation that can be faced by every human, which is pride. It's actually called the sin of the devil in 1 Timothy 3 verse six. Now, the main manifestation of pride that we know is to think too much of ourselves, is to have a big head with big stuff, too big for our boots. We got, we're arrogant, we have got a lot to say, we've got opinions on everything. And Paul even speaks to this specifically in Romans 12 verse three, where he says, for I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So there we have the correction or the the, the warning against pride. But let me tell you, there's another side to the road of pride, and that is to think too little of yourself. To take your own weaknesses or your, your own failings and to disqualify yourself from being used of the Lord because of your perspective of yourself. Because your disagreement with the Lord of what he can do in and through you is just as much pride as thinking too much of yourself. This is a description of us as the redeemed of the Lord. 1 Peter 2 verse nine. But you are a chosen generation, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we have a privileged place in the Lord. And the question then becomes, well, what is the middle ground? How do we navigate keeping things in check? Not too much to this side and not too much to that side. Well, it's very much just agreeing with the Lord of what he says about your life. Each person is unique and different. We've got different giftings, different, different talents, but each one of us has certainly been given a deposit by God. And to agree with him that what he's given us, we will walk in and use. Now, I've got two examples for you initially. I've got a third, but that's coming. Two examples of men of God that were called of the Lord and initially tried to present their weaknesses as an excuse not to agree with him for his calling on their lives. And the first is dear Moses, because he put up the greatest fight out of anyone I've seen in the word that was called. And the Lord allowed him to be a shepherd for 40 years, looking after sheep in the wilderness, where his audience was just kind of fleecy and only responded with from time to time. So he was never put on the spot to really be in a position where he'd have to, to do something on a macro scale. And he sees the burning bush and, he's, and, he, and, and he turns aside to have a look at it and come and see what, uh, what is this wonder. And we're gonna pick it up here in Exodus 3, verse 10 to 11, where Moses has come to the burning bush and the Lord is now giving him instruction. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. We see here Moses, is, he's trying to say, what, who am I? And then Moses goes on to say, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And then the Lord gives him the sign of, of his leprous hand when he puts it in and out of his coat and his staff that would turn to a serpent and when he picked it up, it would turn back to a staff. But Moses, is, he, he's diligent in his, in his squirming. He squirmed like a champion, I tell you. So in Exodus 4 verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore... Go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whoever else you may need. And that's when the Lord becomes angry because he's spoken so clearly and so distinctly. It was undeniable what the Lord had said to Moses. And there are two incredible principles that come forth here. And the first is God gave Moses a divine mandate. I will send you to Pharaoh. The Lord told Moses he was sending him. There was a divine mandate. But secondly, there was a divine empowerment. He said, I will be with your mouth. I will be with you. And so when Moses brings his weaknesses and his fears to the front, the Lord says, I've given you the mandate and I've given you the capability. 
Now this is exactly mimicked in this next portion of scripture concerning Gideon, who was one of the judges. So the judges were after the time of Joshua, they were raised up to deliver Israel from their enemies before the time of the kings, and Gideon was one of the judges. And the Lord appears to Gideon in Judges 6, verse 12 and 14 to 15, and we'll read here. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. Sounds very much like Moses. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And so we see here once again the divine mandate of the Lord sending him, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And we see the divine enablement where he says, you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. I will be, I will be with you. Now, what they had in their hearts was completely contrary to this word that the Lord was speaking to them. But it came with the promise of his divine enablement. And there's another word for divine enablement. And it's quite simply, grace. God's grace is his divine enablement in your life. Mercy is something we experience in desperation. When we've done wrong and we repent, we need God's mercy. But also there are times where we're just in the midst of the most terrible storm and we cry out for mercy because the storm is around us. That is like receiving a gift that we don't deserve in the midst of what is going on. But God's grace is his divine enablement for you to accomplish his will and the things that he has set your hand to do for him. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain but I labored more abundantly than they all. Sounds like he was really working hard. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And here we see, he distinctly says, I worked hard, but it wasn't me that was working. It was God's enablement. It was his grace that was bringing it forth. 2 Corinthians 12 verse nine says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I wanna read this little paragraph to you. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the challenge. Who are you to tell God what you are capable of or what you can possibly do for him? God knows what he is talking about when he calls you and he will enable you to do it with his grace anyway. It is pure pride to deny, to deny his call or grace because of your own perspective of your weakness. Now I'd like to give you one more biblical example of a man called by God and where the Lord, first of all, appears to him. The, the, the subject of weakness is brought up and the Lord speaks about his divine mandate and his divine enablements and that's the prophet Jeremiah. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. It's no different for you, ladies and gentlemen. The Lord knew you from the womb. He's a non-respecter of persons. 
And your calling is just as sure as Jeremiah's. It'll have a different expression, but it's just as sure. Then he said, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a youth. Here's the weakness. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. In this life, we are gonna have two choices. We are either gonna live our life by our own human perspective, the perspective of circumstance, or we are gonna live our lives by faith, trusting that the Lord is at work regardless of circumstance. There's a fascinating story of Joseph that I would just wanna speak a little bit about. And it's a well-known story. And where I wanna pick this up is at the point where Joseph is about to be sold into slavery by his brothers. His father had sent him to a place called Dothan because that's, well, initially it was somewhere else, but he was directed to Dothan because that's where they were feeding the, the flocks. And they grab him and they put him in a pit. And while he's in the pit, they sit down and they have a meal. They're actually eating, discussing whether to kill him or not, or to sell him. And while this is going on, he's pleading for his soul. He's pleading for his soul in anguish. And this is scriptural, it's found in Genesis 42 verse 21 where his brothers are later, uh, I wouldn't say caught, but Joseph had placed them in prison and uh, they didn't know he could understand what they were saying and they said, our sin has come back to visit us. For when the lad pleaded for his soul in anguish, we did not regard him. So you can imagine Joseph in that moment being overwhelmed I mean, if I say to someone, I've had a bad day, they're like, oh, sorry, sorry to hear that, that's a tough one. But if I say to a friend of mine, my soul was in anguish today, there's likely gonna be a little bit more of an intervention, like, I think I need to come and see you right now. And that's the language we get about Joseph, his soul. He was pleading for his soul in anguish. And yet, this is what was going on in the spiritual realm. Listen to Acts 7, verse nine to 10. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles. In that moment where Joseph is in the pit and he's in anguish and his brothers are eating and they're speaking about potentially killing him, in the spirit, he was utterly secure because even in that moment, the Lord was delivering out of all of his troubles. It is the same with you. Now, Something else happened at Dothan, a very interesting incident. This, a city was built there and Elisha and his servant Gehazi lived there. Elisha was one of the Old Testament prophets, one of the most prominent. And at one point, the king of Assyria sends an army to come and capture him. And Gehazi wakes up in the morning and this is what he sees. Two Kings 6 verse 15 to 17. And when the servants of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
Something fascinating. Dothan means place of two wells. Two wells. And Gehazi had very much a perspective like Joseph in that moment, overwhelmed by his circumstance. And Elisha prays, and the reality of what was happening in the spirit was opened up to him. And you, ladies and gentlemen, have an opportunity, regardless of your storm, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your perspective of yourself or what you could bring to the table for the Lord, you can either drink from the well of circumstance, the well of what your own eyes see, or you can drink from the well of the Lord's faithfulness and the, 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 the reality of who he is to you and how he is even now delivering you from all of your troubles. Amen. Amen. That was point one. Point number two is a worthy sacrifice. Now, the Lord had given instruction to Moses on the the Lord had given instruction to Moses on the construction of altars. We find this in Exodus 20. And the first altar that he was commanded to give instruction to the people about was an altar of earth. And in verse 24 we read, "An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen." In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. Ladies and gentlemen, an altar of earth. Doesn't that sound so simple for the God of the universe? If you look at other religions, whether ancient or or even present around the world, how often the gods are venerated or worshipped with this, this golden altar or precious stones, but the God of the universe says an altar of earth is adequate for him. And I wanna tell you that Adam was made of the dust of the earth. And that I believe this wasn't just for Israel, but was a picture for us of being a living sacrifice. Because we are those altars of earth, molded of clay, continuously offering up a fragrance to the Lord. Now what is a worthy sacrifice? What are the sheep and the oxen that we bring and offer to the Lord? You know, there is a price to pay. There is a price to pay for an offering to be a true offering. Because are we truly serving the Lord out of our convenience or are we leading a sacrificial life? But if I can give you a seven-worded answer on what is a worthy sacrifice, it is not my will, but yours be done. That is what Jesus prayed. You see, if you add to that, you're gonna move into works. But if you take away from that, you're gonna be like the, the, uh, the, the, the steward or the servant that was given one talent. He was given a talent because his master knew what his capability was. That parable says that the master gave the talents according to capability. And his praise for the one with the five talents and the two talents was exactly the same. He didn't say, oh, thou of the five talents, thou art the best. If you go read there carefully, he says exactly the same um, affirmation to the one who traded five as the one who traded two because they were just faithful with their capability. But the steward with the one talent buries it and gets stern discipline, to say the least. And that is like us bringing our weaknesses before the Lord and saying, I can't do it. And you're gonna bury what God has given you because you're not willing to develop it, because you've already disqualified yourself. 
And I'm calling you to repent of that today, if that is you. Not my will, but yours be done. Our life is going to offer up a fragrance of some kind. What are we putting on the altar of our lives? What are the sheep and the oxen? I would say in our modern age, it's time. Time spent with God. We are heroes at binge watching Netflix, but not necessarily at getting into the Lord's word and spending time in his presence and worshiping him one on one. There is opportunity for us here today to with the Holy Spirit's help, look at our lives and see if we need to adjust anything anywhere. I don't want any single person here to feel a yoke of undue heaviness. What I would say would be condemnation. The Lord is not the author of condemnation, but conviction. But before I get to those two scriptures that I believe will really encourage you, I wanna share two more scriptures out of the Old Testament of situations where sacrifices were offered and what the Lord had to say about those sacrifices. And the first concerns King David. He had taken a census, which he essentially shouldn't have done, but the Lord actually stirred him up to do it because the people had sinned and the Lord was gonna discipline the people. So a pestilence broke out, but the Lord had mercy. And he commanded David to go and build an altar so that he would stop the plague. And where the plague had reached was a threshing floor of Aruna. Aruna was the owner. He was a Jebusite living near Jerusalem. And David comes to his property and Aruna says to him, King, you wanna make this, this offering? Here are the animals and here's the fuel for the sacrifice. And this is David's response. Then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David bought there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. That which costs me nothing. There is a price to be paid. John 12, 24 says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. But first there's the death and then there's the fruit. And sometimes we stack our lives full of stuff. We're so busy that we just say, God will understand I can't step up and do anything for him at this time. I'm so busy. And there might be times and seasons where that is true and justifiably so. But have an ear to hear what the Spirit would say to you about the expression of your life and about what he's placed in your hand to trade. What talent has he given you? Do not bury it. The second scripture is Malachi 1 verse 8, which says, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. But we do similar. I'll pray today, Lord, and you give him five minutes before you sleep. Or even in terms of our finances. John spoke about it earlier. But you know what? Finances are actually an expression of our time. Because we invest time in an employer. And that's their time. They bought that time. And we do the tasks the employer wants us to do. That's what we've been tasked to do. We receive remuneration from that. 
And then when we bring a portion of that and we give it to the Lord, that is a sacrifice because it's an expression of hard time. You know, sheep and oxen in the Old Testament weren't free. They didn't fall out of the sky like manna, all right? Like manna would form on the ground and feed the people. It was wonderful. Now, after the manna stopped, it's not like oxen and sheep would be walking around on the prairies with dew on their backs that they'd just been provided for the sacrifices. There was a price to be paid. The sheep and oxen had to be looked after. There was effort so that when they offered those animals, it wasn't just an animal sacrifice. It was all the effort that got it there. It's the same for us in our walk with the Lord. Now, I don't want anyone here to feel guilty or condemned. Romans 8 verse one says, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. However, I will follow that scripture with this scripture. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so I pray that if there is a conviction, it would be a conviction. If there's any sense of condemnation, cast that off you, it's not of the Lord. Just open your heart and let him speak to you. The early missionaries to Africa had to take one specific item of luggage with them. Without this, they were not allowed to leave for the mission field. And what it was, was a coffin. Unless they took their own coffin with them, they were not allowed to leave for the mission field because the likelihood of their return was so slim that they had to pr prepare for their almost certain death. That the price they prayed was so, uh, paid was so great that they were willing to sow their own flesh into the mission field for the Lord. Can you imagine what must have been in their hearts on the journey as they were going by ship to Africa and they'd look at that, this coffin that was next to them? It really brings to mind the scripture that says, I die daily. And there is a daily death to bring forth a daily sacrifice unto the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24 to 25, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen, that is point two. It's very quiet in the house today. I trust it's a good word, my goodness. <laughs> my third point is gather together. You know, the Lord placed us in families. We're not meant to live in solitude. Even churches has been given by the Lord for the gathering together of the saints. How good is it to be in the house of the Lord again today? It's wonderful. We've been deprived, I say it like it is, all right? And, and we are trusting for more. But the Lord said, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. It's on his heart that we come together. And we trust that there will be more of an opening. But I wanna encourage you, if you've been struggling to book a seat, don't give up. Don't give up. It was, uh, my goodness, Thomas Edison. I slipped my mind. He tried 10,000 times before he invented the light bulb. Did you know that? 
10,000 times. It's a testimony to continuing through. So if you're struggling to get here, think of Thomas Edison. All right, amen. Now, to move on to another altar that Moses was commanded to build, it was an altar of stone. First an altar of earth, then it was an altar of stone. Listen to the scripture in Exodus 20, 25. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. That means cut stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. In other words, it's gonna be an unacceptable altar to bring a sacrifice. Ladies and gentlemen, you are those uncut stones. Because each one of you is a unique individual, handcrafted by God, like those handcrafted, spoken, uncut stones. And that the gathering of those stones together is the coming together, such as today, of each unique person, unique individual, unique gifting. And corporately, we offer this worship to the Lord. Corporately, we gather around the word. And that is true in both the large group setting as well as the smaller group setting. And so, there is still an authority and an order in God's house. But there is place for each individual to not be conformed to man's ideas of who you should be, but to be molded by the Spirit and to bring, that, to bring your own uniqueness together into this community. Now the problem is that we sometimes underestimate our own kind of ministry. We seem to think that unless we're a prophet, apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, or pastor, that somehow our ministry is less because it's not one of these major ministries as referred to in Ephesians. And I wanna tell you that's not the case. You know, in fact, to give a good example, if we go to the game park at any stage, we tend to judge whether it was a success or not by how many of the big five we've seen. I mean, let's face it. You come back from the game park and everyone says to you, so how many of the big five did you see? Oh, I saw elephants and I saw rhino and I saw lions. And in fact, I've got a bit of a story here. You know, I, um, I, I had initially written down as the big five lions, leopards, cheetahs, buffalo, and elephants. But thank goodness I corrected myself before this very morning. And about two hours ago, I had the revelation it was rhinos. And so I saved myself some serious embarrassment and perhaps some letters to the church too. Don't your pastors even know what the big five are? So that was avoided, bless God. Um, but some people would say, I've just got a hornball ministry. I've got a mongoose ministry, all right? And they, and they seem to somehow think that it's, it's, you know, there's a discrepancy before God, and that's not the case. I want you to listen to me as I read. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18 to 24. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. Every single individual. Your ministry is not the gifting and manifestation of how public or prominent it is. That is not the case in the least. 
It's how much love you infuse into what you do for God that is the economy of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 2, 3 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. I'm telling you now, the lady who knits blankets for abandoned babies in secret and donates them, but puts more love into that ministry that God has given her, she can crochet, she can knit, has got a greater weight before the Lord than the man who stands on a stage preaching to thousands, but is going through the motions of his ministry and enjoying the praise of men, regardless of the manifestation or the power of his gift. Love is the economy of the kingdom of heaven. Infuse your love into that specific gift that God has given you, and that is a worthy sacrifice. Amen. Now, there were two ministries I want to say quickly. I'm like, trying to stay in the time. And uh, the one was the widow's might. It wasn't much on the surface. Circumstantially, it was not much of an offering at all. Yet she has a place in God's eternal word for the sacrifice she made. She took her love and she loved the Lord with all that she had, even though it was a few cents. I'm telling you, there are apostles and prophets in the first century church that aren't in the book of Acts, that accomplish major works whose, whose exploits are in the books of heaven. But they're not in, in the word we have, and yet this widow was. Now the same can be said of Mary of Bethany. She broke open a pound of spikenard oil and anointed the Lord's body for his death. In the time where his disciples could not stay awake one hour with him, such an amount of expensive perfume would likely have lasted long. And I like to think that he could still smell the fragrance, the fragrance and the aroma of the love that was showed, showed to him by Mary in the midst of his most desperate hour and trial. And that she anointed him is in the word. It seems like an insignificant ministry on the surface. Do not discredit yourself for what the Lord would do in you and through you. Don't discredit the hands he's given you and the heart he's placed in your chest. And don't look at the big five and think unless I'm there, I don't have something of consequence to give to the Lord. Now the Lord commanded us to gather together both in a large and a small way. And I will end with this. In Acts 2 verse 26, it says for the early church, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So we see there is the gathering together like this, the gathering of uncut stones for a corporate worship service. But there was also a gathering from house to house. And I wanna encourage you, open your hearts to the possibility of joining a small group. Open your hearts to the possibility of coming and volunteering here at the church. I'm not being God's salesman here, all right? All I'm saying is that let the Spirit lead you and begin to trade your talent. Don't sit on it and bury it. The Lord has got a purpose and a plan. Agree with Him. Bring a worthy sacrifice and gather together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I bless your people. I pray it would rest upon their hearts. I pray that you'd plant it deeply within all of us 
But more than anything, I pray you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us. And Lord, just that we would agree with you, we would walk with you, we would love you, that we would take of your divine mandate and we would walk in your divine grace, your divine enablement. In Jesus' name, amen.